1: The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com
0: slash now. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Pushkin. Music has always been an escape for Jim James. From the time he started playing guitar as a shy teenager in Louisville, Kentucky, through his decades-long success as the frontman of My Morning Jacket, his goal has always been the same, to lose himself in the music. Since starting My Morning Jacket in 1998, he's released eight albums with the band, along with several critically acclaimed solo and side projects. And despite his prodigious output, Jim doesn't seem to be running out of material. In July, The Jacket released The Waterfall 2, a complete album of holdovers from their 2015 album, The Waterfall. And according to Jim, they've got another full album already recorded. Jim's also sitting on a solo project from 1998 that he's recently started tinkering with again. On today's episode, Jim talks to Bruce Headlam about how after decades of performing, he was only recently able to open his eyes on stage and make eye contact with the crowd, And he talks about how my morning jacket might not exist if it hadn't been for Kermit the Frog's Rainbow Connection. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Just a quick note here. You can listen to all of the music mentioned in this episode on our playlist, which you can find a link to in the show notes. For licensing reasons, each time a song is referenced in this episode, you'll hear this sound effect. All right, enjoy the episode. Here's Bruce Hedlum's conversation with Jim James. Tell me about Waterfalls 2. Tell
2: me
3: how it all came about. It's definitely not a Leftovers record or a a B-Sides record. It's like, there was a time when we finished it all where we're like, oh, maybe we'll just release this giant quadruple record or whatever you know of, of all of the songs but it just felt like that just would have been too much and uh people probably would have missed a lot of the songs just because it's way too much to sort through um uh, because even like the first waterfall is still like double vinyl it's still like a long record mm-hmm. i didn't really think about it until the waterfall 2 but i think we built the waterfall one with a lot of touring in mind, you know, oftentimes like we'll think about like, oh, what songs are going to be good in the set or this kind of thing will work itself into the sequence of a record a- as the record sequences itself too mm-hmm. in that magic process. So it's interesting with the waterfall too, you know, there was no touring because it came up. The idea came up to me during the first couple of weeks of quarantine as a way to like, reconnect with with fans and reconnect with ourselves as a band, uh, because I had forgotten about it. And I one of the songs came up randomly as I was walking. And I was like, Oh, my God, we still got this whole other record, you know, it's done. It's like there's this would be hopefully a really great thing to release now, while we're all trapped in this weird pandemic. So it's interesting, because the record just like, it just went and it all sequenced itself really quickly and i took a couple walks with it to feel the sequence and uh it was just so effortless
2: so when you say you walked with it did you literally just put a sequence on your iphone or your whatever and then just walk around to see did this feel like a record
3: that's how i walk and i hike a lot and uh that's how i usually work on most music i'm working on is whether i'm mixing something or writing something or or sequencing something or approving a master or whatever, I'll go hike with it and see how it works as a hike. Yeah, that's just how I, how I process it for whatever reason.
2: When I was listening to it and then I was going back and forth, sort of toggling between the two records, there's a lot more heartbreak in this record. It's much more ambivalent. It maybe is not the kind of arena rocker record. It's it's very hopeful at points, but but the first record had more of a, a drive and had you know started with Believe. And this one, you know, it starts with uh, Spinning My Wheels. It's, it's a very different feel. Is that a reflection of what you were going through back then or what you're going through now, do you think?
3: Well, it's funny because I, I think a lot of those songs didn't initially make the waterfall one because of that reason. We were touring and we were like, oh, let's, you know, make it as upbeat as we can and stuff. And I had gone through a breakup then, you know, real difficult, painful breakup, that a lot of those songs came out of and it really is in a lot of ways, a breakup record, but I think the re- reason it resonated with me and maybe the reason it resonates with people now is because it feels like we're breaking up with life in a lot of ways, you know, in this pandemic, it's like, we've, we can't do so many of the things we used to love to do. And, and that's so painful. So it's like, I, I didn't really even think about that, but, if it resonates with somebody, maybe it resonates on that level. Hopefully, as like a a comfort to this sadness we're all feeling right now, collectively in so many ways, you know, that kind of uh, was broken open by the the isolation of the pandemic. Why are the albums called waterfalls? Well, I mean, I've just always loved nature, and 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 I've always needed nature to balance the insanity of. Uh, of life on this planet because so, so many times I don't feel like I'm, I'm at home on this planet and I don't understand a people and I don't understand why things are the way they are here. Like why is there so mm-hmm. much hatred and why is there so much violence and war? So I'll go into nature with the trees and the lake and the ocean and, and feel at peace, you know, with those beings. And for me in nature, one of the coolest things is a waterfall you know when when a water when you see a waterfall whether it's a little one in the woods or you know giant snow falls or niagara falls or multnomah falls or it's just always been something that like takes my breath away you know and i stand mm-hmm. there and i can look at it forever you know and it's like it plays tricks on your mind and you can pretend like you're pausing it or like rewinding it or fast forwarding it it's just this really amazing thing so i just thought just to have that thing with the music felt so cool uh, you know I
2: ask because I grew up near Niagara Falls and you know the thing about waterfalls is there are a lot of people who when they see waterfalls um, it scares them because they feel like they have to jump you know there's a whole community of people around Niagara Falls who plan to go over the falls even though they know it might kill them and you ask them why and they're just like I just got to do it yeah In Walt Whitman and Song of Myself, there's a very powerful scene where he walks out. I think he calls it a a headland, but it's like a promontory over a lake. And he feels people are laughing at him. And he's writing about being an artist. But it's all that thing like, I'm out here and it's beautiful. Do I fall? Do I jump? Right. And I just thought of that so much when I was listening to this record. That's what made me think about it in the waterfalls. Because that whole thing of risking your life for the sake of a song is... It's kind of like, am I going to jump? Yeah. Uh, And that's what a lot of that, the
3: record feels like to me. No, I love that. I mean, I've never thought about that, but that resonates a lot because, yeah, I feel that for sure with waterfalls. I mean, that's a great thing about a waterfall, too, is you can view it from the bottom. You can view it from the top, you know, and when you're at the top, Mm -hmm. you are like, oh, my God, you know, like this thing could carry me. Into the next dimension. You know, it's like if I get on this thing and fried it off, I am probably gonna be gone from this dimension. And Mm -hmm. yeah, like Niagara, when you're at Niagara Falls, you're like, oh my god, like if I jump in this water and go over these falls, I'm gone. You know, you know, chances are, you know, 99% likelihood that I am fucking gone. And that is like Mm -hmm. what else? You know, can you say that about that kind of powerful force that can rip your life away, you know, in, in nature, mm-hmm. I mean, so quickly, you know, you, of course you could drown in a lake or an ocean or whatever, but the waterfall is just like, wah, 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 you know, it's like, so, yeah. it's, it's violent. There's
2: something kind of ecstatic and exciting about it, too. Sorry, I hope I'm not ruining waterfalls for you. That's not what I meant to do. Not at all. Hey, tell me a bit about spinning my wheels, because it's it's got that, it's not the first line, but that incredible line about wondering about risking your life for the sake of a song.
3: It's very unsettling. Tell me where that came from. Well, I just had been doing that for so many years. I, I had literally like been to the hospital three times uh, from injuries that I sustained on tour. And I, and I really felt, uh, for so long, touring was a love-hate thing for me because I didn't listen to myself. I listened to managers, you know, and agents and pressure and, you know, you got to get out there and you got to succeed and blah, blah, blah. You know, this, this relentless push that so many people, I mean, all of us know it in life, no matter what, what job we're in, you know, everybody at a certain point, you have this crushing push of life. And if you don't listen to yourself and find some balance, you get hurt, you know, you get injured and literally and metaphysically. and, And I felt for so long, that I was fighting that, that I kept risking my life over and over again to do this, this thing, this, this touring thing or whatever. So I I think eventually that's kind of the jacket kind of, I had to put it on hold for a while. It takes so much energy. I don't know if that's one thing people don't, don't know or think about when they think about the, uh, the bands they love or the artists they love or whatever. It's like, if you're fortunate enough to keep going for a long time, there's so much energy that you have to summon. You know, we've been touring now for over 20 years or whatever. So a lot of these songs, I have to find the uh, the pain of the 22 year old me or whatever, even though I'm a 40 year old or whatever, you know, and it's like, it's this wild thing that takes up so ener- so much energy. And if you're not careful with that energy, it can kill you. It's like playing with electricity or something.
2: Yeah. And you're famous for your live shows. They're electric. They're huge experiences for people. It's not like, yeah, I saw them. They played the songs I liked. It's like, oh, my God, I saw my morning jacket. People go to feel something to be transformed.
3: That's what we hope. I mean, thanks. I don't you know, it's like live music to, to all of us has always been such a a healing thing, you know, so we want to be a part of that circle of of healing. Yeah. When you see a, a live concert that moves you with people, you know, again, it's that thing. It heals you so much. We need that so much right now. And that's we're missing it during the mm-hmm. pandemic, you know, and it's this fucking like nightmare, you know, that's uh, yeah, I, I, it's it's such a powerful experience. So tell me a bit about growing up
2: in in Louisville. You, you had a great quote once I read that um, everybody in the north thinks Louisville's in the south. Everybody in the south thinks Louisville's in the north. Uh, what kind of town was it when you grew up there?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's why I've always loved it. It's it's such a mysterious and strange place. I feel like there's so many ghosts here and there's so many. The nature here is amazing, like the trees are amazing and the, and the spirits are amazing. There's a lot of uh, creative energy here, but there's also a lot of uh, darkness, you know, and there's a lot of the horrors of the past of the United States, you know, the horrors of slavery and the the horrors of, uh, you know, Louisville being such a strange place because, yeah, it, wa- it wasn't north and it wasn't south, but it kind of was north. And, you know, on the Underground Railroad, uh, a lot of people would escape. And we went down, some friends and I went down and stood on the banks of the Ohio River a couple of weeks ago uh, and stood where fleeing slaves would stand before they tried to cross the Ohio river to get to this steeple on the other side in Indiana as this beacon that once they got to this steeple, they were probably going to be free. What was it like to stand there and look? I mean, I'm tearing up thinking about it now. You know, it's like just standing there thinking about, uh, because there's a part of a town called Portland in Louisville that was where Louisville came up, and it was the shipping port on the Ohio River. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, everything, a lot of slave trading, a lot of uh, merchandise and everything in the town came from mm-hmm. there. And a lot of that, all the buildings and stuff are, have been gone or have changed, but there's still a lot of old houses there that they're like that house used to be, uh, you know, where abolitionists would hide Uh, slaves right before they broke across the river to freedom or that was a jail where they would capture slaves and you know all this stuff all this energy down there you know Louisville is still battling today with Mm -hmm. the death of Breonna Taylor and and all of the systemic racism that you know we're battling as a country but in Louisville it's resonating at a really really high frequency right now which I think is is really Hopeful in a lot of ways because hopefully this energy can continue and and push to more equality and more fairness and and real justice and and uh, but it's it's a uh, yeah Louisville's a fascinating place. We should go back though. So tell me about your family growing up. You know, for all intensive purposes, normal middle class family. Uh, we struggled for a while and, you know, never had much money and moved to Atlanta, Georgia for a couple years and uh, moved back to Kentucky, but uh, always had a really great and supportive family, like always had people I could depend on. Was there music at home growing up? You know, there wasn't a lot of music like my parents. There was like music on in the car or whatever. They were casual music fans. Mm -hmm. And luckily, when I was a kid, there's a lot of great just kind of oldies radio on uh, with whatever Motown or Mm -hmm. Simon and Garfunkel or, you know, whatever would be on the oldies radio. So I think a lot of that went into my brain. Was there a a point? Was there a a record? Was
2: there a song that when you heard it, you said, oh, yeah, that's that's what I want to do?
3: Yeah, I had several of those moments. You know, I mean, the first one was the Muppet Show, seeing the Muppet Show band, uh, The Electric Mayhem.
2: You're the first first musician I know whose favorite band growing up was the were the Muppets.
3: Man, well, you saw them, and, and I remember, uh, you know, even seeing Kermit sing The Rainbow Connection. You know, I just would see that, and I'd be like, oh, my God, like, what is that power he has? You know, what is what is he doing? You know, and how do I do that? You know, like, how do I sit on a log with a banjo and make that sound that affects people like this is affecting me, you know? And then as I grew older, uh, I remember seeing Neil Young on uh, Saturday night live do harvest moon, you know, it, that was a really turning point for me. Cause we, uh, my mom and I were up late watching Saturday night live and he played, uh, and his, uh, tech was sweeping the broom, you know, and keeping the rhythm on the broom. And we both yeah. watched that and we so moved by it. And uh the next day my mom bought me Harvest accidentally instead of Harvest Moon. You know, she was like, Here's that record we We here's what we saw yeah. new, Neil Young play last night. And I was like, Oh, cool. And I put it on and I was like, Holy shit, you know, like this wasn't uh, Harvest Moon, you know, that's a whole mm-hmm. other thing, you other know. Thing, yeah. So I was just like, I never forget sitting in the basement listening to that fucking record, you know, and, and just like That was definitely a Kermit the Frog moment, you know, of seeing Neil. And at that time, too, grunge was blowing up. So, you know, seeing Kurt Cobain, uh, seeing Michael Stipe was huge for me. R.E.M. was a a huge thing of seeing, like, uh, these weird dudes from the South, you know, that are, like, Mm -hmm. making this weird music that is having this beautiful effect on the world. You know, I'll never forget seeing R.E.M. and being like, maybe gosh maybe i could do that you know it's like because i never felt like i could do hair metal which i was also into at the time it was so popular and i was like man i don't know if i can do the hair metal thing you know like i don't think i I don't think i can accomplish that but (laughs) (laughs) was it the hair or the metal because you got nice hair well it was uh, just so aggressive there was this big aggressive thing going on you know and it's like this big uh You know, as a kid, you watch that and you're like, shit, well, I got to have a costume and I got to have, you know, leather outfit and I got to have these fucking walls of stacks, you know, and all this shit, all the things that went with it, you know, that that you're like, shit, is that what you have to have if you're going to be in a rock and roll band? You know, because I didn't have older, uh, I didn't have any older siblings to tell me about Lou Reed or tell me about, you know, Chuck Berry or older rock and roll. So I kind of like Mm -hmm. was born into rock and roll thinking it was a, heavy metal or whatever, you know, and then, yeah. and then you see Nirvana and you see REM and, you know, you see these bands that also talk about their influences. So you start going back and you're like, oh, fuck, I missed the whole, you know, first couple of yeah. chapters.
2: <laughs> you were saving up for a banjo and a log. So like, have you actually ever
3: played Rainbow Connection? Yeah, I've played it a couple of times. Oh, really? What's it like to play? It's amazing. I mean, it's a masterwork. You know, it's like Paul Williams wrote that song. And, uh, I mean, Rainbow Connection, again, it's like, it's like Lean On Me or Imagine or Stand By Me. You know, it, it is one of our greatest uh, mm-hmm. songs as, as humanity. We'll be
0: right back with more from Jim James after the break.
4: Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music. The strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the Nasdaq, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now, Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. He put everything you need to know in a new presentation specifically designed for people off Wall Street. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at newstocktrend.com right now. Again, the link to watch is newstocktrend.com. That's newstocktrend.com.
1: where America
0: goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in Outlaw Country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed the Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. Before we jump back into Bruce Hedlem's conversation with Jim James, let's hear an acoustic performance of Spinning My Wheels from My Morning Jacket's new album,
3: The Waterfall 2.
2: Was a guitar your first instrument? Yeah. And when did when did that start?
3: Like 7th grade?
2: Do you remember what your guitar
3: was back then? Yeah, I've I've got I'm trying to think of which one I've got cuz I got like my uh my great aunt, Aunt Betty was a uh, kind of like my grandmother in a lot of ways. And she was a real big uh, yard sale nut, you know, so she knew I was getting into guitar and she got me this real cool, you know, no name brand, little fifties guitar or whatever for Mm -hmm. 30 bucks at a yard sale. So I had that. And then uh, my parents got me an acoustic for Christmas. That was really cool. And then my uh, uncle loaned me some money that I had to work at his uh, paper company to pay him back for this, like, other like cheap uh, squire strat and i still got all three of those guitars they all kind of came around the same time and then
2: uh, there was a, like a scene in louisville right like a, a good lot of musicians were there a lot of clubs why were there so many bands there
3: that was a wild scene so i kind of came in on the tail end of that scene it was a really difficult scene it was really uh a really pretentious and uh there was a lot of like just like kind of snobbery and it, it wasn't a very healthy place but there was some really great music that came out of it and uh you know as a little kid you know let's say whatever eighth grade sophomore in high school whenever you're first going to shows you know, you want to be welcomed into these places, you know, but you, instead you go and it's like, everybody's too cool for school. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of this metaphysical thing where you feel kind of like, shit, you know, I'm not cool enough to be here or whatever. But mm-hmm. around that, there grew another community of people who felt like that, who also created this beautiful scene of uh, a more welcoming thing. So there's there always has been and there always will be uh, a really vibrant beautiful musical community here that's uh you know so many different styles of music and and just things but yeah that scene in the in the uh, early 90s louisville scene was uh incredibly popular and incredibly uh resonated really big but it was a really tough place to be
2: it's funny how local scenes they're either like uh the seattle scene was in the early 90s which was actually those bands got along and they liked each other and they played with each other or they're like the sort of New York folk scene. They're not cooperative. They're competitive and it gets very cutthroat. And as you said, people looking down on other you're playing the wrong song, you're playing the wrong instrument, you know, you're doing the wrong thing, but you found a group of people who are not like that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. A group of people who could just watch each other struggle you know and, and enjoy it and laugh about it you know like just just to have fun you know to be all mm-hmm. be a part cuz we're all struggling you know that and that's one reason i think a lot of us love music so much cuz it helps you uh get through the struggle
2: uh, you've got a uh there's a strong spiritual element to your songs and certainly the way you talk about it there's a strong spiritual element and you really you really feel about music that it's a kind of restorative a thing in people's lives. Did you go to church when you were a kid? Where did that sense come from? That spiritual sense.
3: Well, it was my church. I I am a recovering Catholic. I was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm still recovering from that. I've never been able to really get down with any kind of organized religion. Like I don't, I don't, I also don't look down on it. Whatever people want to do is, is fine with me, but it never uh, worked for me. So I, I always found religion in music and in nature. I feel like the, those were the only places I ever felt like my life mattered or that I, it made sense at all. That was the only way I could find peace, you know, and and then once you gr- start growing up and learning about people like George Harrison or Alice Coltrane or you know people that really started to explain to you the spiritual side of music, you know, and that music is indeed healing and indeed there are spiritual and scientific principles behind notes and frequencies and chords. And, you know, these things that uh, in in the music of the earth, you know, the music of nature, the music of the birds, the music of the waterfalls, you know, all these things that a lot of times we don't even realize our
2: music as well. Do you take that with you into the concert hall? Because your concerts are, you know, people describe your concerts as religious experiences, not that they're converted to anything, but they're, they're bigger than themselves. They feel connected in a way. Is that something you aim for? Or is it about your relationship
3: with the audience? Where does that come from? Definitely? I mean, you aim for it, you don't always get there, you know, but the goal is to get lost, right? The goal is to be gone. You know, I think for all of us, and I, I played a a rally the other day, uh, for Amy McGrath here in Kentucky and I mm-hmm. hadn't played a show in for, I can't, I can't remember the last time I played a show and I only played two songs. It was just a kind of rally thing. And I realized again, that thing, I was like, there are these moments when the gateway is open, like the portal is open and I'm gone. And then there's moments when I'm back and I'm like, Oh shit, it's my guitar in tune or oh, it's kind of cold out here. What you know? And, you're back on the earth thinking about all this shit that you think about. But when you're gone, you're gone and you're in touch with everything. You know, you're in touch. All of life forces in touch. I feel like when when we're in that state and, you know, you can get there through meditation or you can get there through love or sex or you can get there through music or you can get there through nature. So, yeah, I hope when people come see our concerts, that can happen for them, too. You know, they can they can get there so that Mm -hmm. they're not on the earth anymore, and we're all united on this other plane that we don't have words for, and you kind of come and go. You know, you step behind the veil, and you're gone, and you wake up, and you're like, oh, shit, I gotta go pee, or I gotta go get a beer from the bar, or somebody just knocked into me, or whatever brings you back to earth.
2: It sounds like you remember that experience of going into clubs when you were a kid and not feeling welcome. Oh, yeah. Are there things you do to make... Your audience feel welcome? Are there, are there tricks you do?
3: I mean, we always want everybody to feel welcome because that's one thing as a kid and, you know, like going to this scene, this this snobbish scene in Louisville, like I never felt welcome. Going to a Catholic grade school and high school, I never felt welcome. You know, I always felt like the outcast kind of freak or whatever. And it's like, you know, at the end of the day, we that's kind of all of our job to realize we're all in the same boat. You know, we're all some blend of uh, unique Mm -hmm. freakishness in a beautiful way, no matter what you are, no matter how normal you think you are, or how weird you think you are. So it's like music is one of the best ways to unify on that. You know, so I think we try to do everything we can to uh, let everybody know that they're welcome and that this is all about equality and inclusion and safety and love and peace and You know, how can we be as much of a force of love as possible?
2: I'm wondering when you're playing, do you, do you ever look out and see somebody who reminds you of you back when you weren't feeling so welcome?
3: That's a great question. You know what? It's wild for the longest time. I couldn't look at people like I couldn't handle it. Uh, I mean, for years, when we first started playing, I had my hair in my face. And I had, uh, and for years I had sunglasses on. For a lot of time I can't, it's so intense that I can't handle it. Uh, For years I couldn't. And then two or three years ago, something changed and I could handle it. And now I like it. Now I like looking out and and finding people and looking into people's eyes and, and trying to see people, you know. And I've never thought about it that way. But I definitely you you see people throughout the thing you know you see somebody and you're like oh man they they look lost or you see somebody crying or you see somebody fucking throwing their beer in the air and screaming you know and joy and so it's like that's a wild thing to be on stage and see that many different emotions <laughs> you know like was it just was it just too intense for you before you couldn't it was too intense and I was too shy and I was too nervous and I was too uh because a lot of times too, you'll look at people and they've got their arms crossed and they look like they hate it, mm-hmm. you know. They're like, and until I realized, I was like, I probably look like that at a lot of my favorite shows. You know, if I'm like kind of bummed or whatever, I'm not going to be dancing and throwing a beer around, even though I'm like loving the show. You might look mm-hmm. at me and I'm like, <laughs> you know. And when you see people as a performer, you, when I look in the crowd and I used to see somebody like that, I'll be like, oh shit, we're doing terrible. This is a terrible show. I'm doing. Terrible job, you know, and it's like I would get focused on that one person that looked bummed and missed all the other people that looked joyful. You know, I just couldn't handle that for a year, for the majority of our career. Wow. Is it is it nicer to play now? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. It's incredible. I mean, it's only uh, the last two or three years or whatever that I've flipped the page and, and gotten into enjoying it. And uh, now, expect, you know, and it's so funny because – the jacket was on break for a long time and we got together and did these four shows two at red rocks and uh two in new york and those shows were probably my favorite shows of my life you know it's like mm. they were so beautiful and so all career spanning and i felt so present and so connected and it's like i could look into people's eyes and i didn't feel the need for any costumes or any tricks or, you know, I was just like, let's go live or die. But with the music, mm-hmm. I'm going to walk out here in my fucking t-shirt with my guitar and I'm going to look you in the eye. <laughs> I'm going to try, <laughs> I'm going to try to look you in the eye and I'm going to fucking live or die. And that's it. You know, that's the yeah. end of the thing. And it was so beautiful. And then the fucking pandemic hits, you know, it's like, and that's like, so, you know, right when we were like, all oh, right, this is awesome. Like, I'm ready to do this. So now it's like, you know, we're all on pause or whatever. So whenever it comes back, it's like I get teared up thinking about it, how powerful it's going to be for all of us to go to concerts again. You know, when, when we can all get together again, it is going to be like fucking crazy.
0: We'll be right back with more from Jim James after the break.
4: Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music, the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the NASDAQ, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at marketmessage2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is marketmessage2024.com. That's marketmessage2024.com.
1: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
0: Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with Jim James and Bruce Hadlam. You've done a lot of covers. You did an album
2: of Harrison covers. You did the New Basement Tapes which were you and a lot of other great musicians, Elvis Costello and Mumford's and many people, writing songs to Bob Dylan lyrics. And you did the same thing with Woody Guthrie. What was it like to write to somebody else's lyrics?
3: So cool. I mean, couldn't have better lyrical, uh, you know, than Dylan and Guthrie, you know. It's like, so, because we did the Woody Guthrie one first, and, uh, being at the Guthrie archives, like seeing all his Im- massive output of lyrics, like on everywhere on grocery receipts and bags. And, you know, there's piles of mountains and mountains and mountains of lyrics that this, this guy mm-hmm. wrote, you know, and it's like, you know, and obviously he was no longer with us. So there was a lot of, uh, I would try and find him out there, you know, as I was writing this music and, and try and get his blessing and bring him in and hope that he was good with what was going on. And with the Dylan thing was so crazy because they like brought all these lost lyrics that he had written back in the Woodstock basement tapes days or whatever. And we're sitting here looking at like the actual pieces of paper, the literal pieces of paper that he wrote all this shit on. And you're like, motherfucker's still alive. You know, it's like, I, I hope he likes this stuff. You know, it's like, so I like tried to find him, you know, and 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 look to him for guidance, you know, in the ether or whatever. Even though he's still alive, and the first day we were there, somebody's like, Jones across the hall, like mixing <laughs> some other record, and we we're all like, oh shit! We were all like super terrified. We we're like, I hope he, I hope he doesn't stop by, you know. It's like it was
2: so funny. Did you end up meeting them then or since
3: then? No, we toured with uh, Dylan years ago. And uh I got to sing on stage with him a couple times, which was, you know, beyond an honor to say the least. Uh, he brought Jeff Tweedy and myself out. We were on tour with Wilco and Dylan, and we, we sang with them six or seven times throughout the tour, but never did you see him off stage. You know, he, he was not it's like his bus rolls up five minutes before he plays. He walks off this bus on the stage, plays the songs, gets back on the bus and rolls away. You know, that's he's not there at all. He's gone. Yeah. You know, so to see him like that's the only well, kind that's of, his
2: song. I'm not there. Right.
3: So. Right. It yeah. was so crazy. So you're like the only time I've ever seen him was up there on that stage. Wow. It was so wow.
2: Yeah. You just you couldn't walk up with a couple of beers and say, hey. Why do not you uh, join us? It was just Well, that's
3: like... how they pitched the tour to us like that. And that's why we're so excited about the tour. They were like, Dylan wants to collaborate with some younger bands. And like, we'll have you guys and Wilco. And, you know, we pictured ourselves like sitting around the campfire being like, let's do Desire in its entirety tonight. Bob, how's that sound? And you're like, or like, you know, whatever. Let's, <laughs> let's write a new song or whatever, you know. And we pictured yeah. all this collaboration and all these hijinks and stuff. And we get on tour and it's like, he is not there for... uh. You know, for like the first two or three weeks, we didn't even hear anything about any uh, collaborations or anything. And then uh, one day, his bass player Tony walks up to us at dinner and hands us the CD of this Reverend Gary Davis song. And he's like, "I think Bob wants wants you guys to come sit in with him tonight." You know, and 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 we were like, "Wow!" You know, just out of the blue. And then uh, I had heard this before, but he notoriously likes to change the key, I guess. And I don't know anything. (laughs) about keys yeah. or any you know, so so <laughs> Jeff and I are like rushing to learn this song before we go play it with him, you know, and we're like mm-hmm. backstage with our guitars and we like finally kinda learn it. And literally like 10 minutes before we're getting ready to go on, the guitar tech comes back and he's like, oh, I think Bob wants to do it in B flat instead of D diminished or whatever the original key was. So we're like, oh, shit. We run back into catering. And we're like <laughs> moving our capos around, like trying to figure it out. It was, so, I mean, I don't think I've ever been more nervous in my life. It was so funny. Did it come off though? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, i, I who yeah. knows? I hope so. He's so yeah, fucking but- cool though, because you look over at him and he, I mean, talk about gone. I mean, that dude is like, you look over at, at Bob and he is not there in the coolest way. You know what I mean? It's like he is, I don't know what, where he is or what's going on, but it was inspiring to to look over there and see that mm-hmm. far away look in his eyes, like, you know, in an inspiring way, not a, not a vacant way. You know, it was like, like he, he. You know, for so many of us, he is such a channel. You know, and it's like to see see up see him that close. Like it was, it was really beautiful.
2: I am interested, though. Did you were there things about writing to his lyrics that when you were writing the songs and the songs you wrote are they're very different sounding, uh, particularly on the on the on the new basement tapes. Like you really take his songs in kind of different directions. No one, it, it doesn't sound like a Bob Dylan tribute album. It sounds like you really transform them. Right. But when you were doing them were you going I see what he did here, I'm going to do this on my next album. Were there were there tricks you saw or things he did you thought okay, that's great. I'm going to I'm going to use that.
3: I mean, probably subliminally. You know, I mean, there's been so much of his music that's informed and inspired so much of my music. You know, it's like so I don't think consciously I wrote there's still four or five songs that I wrote and re-recorded that didn't get released or whatever. So I wrote eight or nine songs. And after, I'm trying to think of what we did after that. I think we did The Waterfall after that. I think maybe one thing that I did learn was just to try and be less precious with things. Because that was one thing that is well known about the basement tapes, is there's so much information, you know, beyond what was released as the original basement tapes. You know, now there's been box sets released and all this stuff of all Mm -hmm. the basement tapes. And then to learn there were this project we did, even more lyrics, you know, that never got music. And the beautiful thing about it was, is you could feel he wasn't being uh, precious about it because some of these lyrics are hilarious. You know, some of them are goofy. Some of them are Mm -hmm. heartbreakingly, crushingly sad. You know, some are the most beautiful poetry you've ever read. And as I went into the future from that, I was like, let's just let it be. You know, this stuff comes from wherever it comes from. And I'm just going to let something be goofy or I'm going to let it be half finished or I'm going to let it be complete and beautiful and heartbreaking or monumental. You know, whatever the thing is trying to be, instead of trying to change it too much, I'm just going to let it be what what the universe wants it to be.
2: What's writing like for you now? Uh, Are you writing currently?
3: I'm always kind of writing, but I've been so bummed during this whole pandemic that it's like i feel like and i know a lot of people can probably relate to this i feel like most days you're just trying to keep your head above water you know of just like the horror of the current administration and the horror of the political landscape and you know hoping that there's a vaccine you know hoping all these things i feel like this is such a time where we're all like just trying to like get through each day you know where mm-hmm. doing fine has become the new great you know if you're doing yeah. if you're doing fine that's all you're, you're having a hell of a day so uh, a lot of days I don't have the metaphysical energy to work on things but I'm still collecting the ideas are coming and I collect them on my voice memo so I don't forget them so I can work mm-hmm. on them and I've also been going through I've got a, a lot of older uh, albums that I've made and I've been working on a lot of older stuff like trying to finish older stuff and uh, that's been really healing for me because that's been a different part of my brain that's like a, a i can still be productive and creative but i'm not using this whatever part of your brain you, you use when you're working on brand new things
2: if that mm-hmm. makes sense can you work on old stuff and not be too hypercritical not look and say ah what was i thinking and i shouldn't have done that and you know what interested me about waterfalls is is that you just took those songs from five years ago and you didn't say, you know, we got to fix this. Or, oh, that was why was I do anybody else would feel self-conscious. But you're like, no, it's what they are.
3: That's the thing. It's all a time machine. You know, it's all to for me to now to go fix that thing is kind of like breaking the space time continuum or whatever. And I'm not even mm. saying you can't or you shouldn't do that because there are no rules to anything. So people should do whatever they want musically. But. But for me, that's one of the coolest things about music or or a career trajectory is you get these little time machine snapshots of a person over all these years. So the person I was when I made the waterfall, a completely different person, you know, and I was a heartbroken person and all this energy that's so different. And I'm literally, you know, they say your cells regenerate every seven years or whatever. So you're Mm -hmm. literally a completely different person physically, too. But it's interesting because I have this record I made years ago, like in 1998 or something, that I made with one of my buddies who's now passed away. And actually, Patrick from My Morning Jacket played drums on it. And it's been sitting there forever. And for years, I've just been like, there's so much I like about it. But, you know, it's real not recorded that well and there's a lot of mistakes and yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, oh, geez, Louise. But just recently, I was like, i just just going to finish this fucking thing and just let it be as it was. You know, mm. it's like, here it is. If, I, if you like it, great. If you don't, great. You know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's just like, it's fun. It's fun for me to like feel this cool old time machine because back then I was obsessed with it. I love it. was like, I fucking, it was all I could think about.
2: You also, you've done a couple Interesting things, because, you know, I, I tend to think of you as like a, you're a rock guy, so you're thinking of guitar licks and solos and lyrics. But you did this, this great cover of the Brian Wilson song, I Just Wasn't Made For These Times, and you, you sampled an old Isaac Hayes song for it. That's kind of like almost a hip hop mentality. It's like a collage. You're putting things
3: together. Do you do a lot of that kind of experimentation too? Oh yeah, I mean I've always loved sampling, and uh, I mean if you think about it, everything's sampling. You know, if you play a C and a G chord, how many fucking people have played C and G chords before you or whatever? You know, it's it's all. Yeah,
2: you don't have to talk to their lawyers though. That's the well, yeah,
3: that is true. (laughs) But but it's interesting though when you think about uh, the way that like literal sampling started just as a necessity or whatever. You know, it's like people started looping these passages so they could speak their mind and speak their lyrics over this passage because they didn't have a guitar or they didn't, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. they didn't have a drum kit. So they had a recorded drum kit that they could loop, you know, from an old James Brown record or whatever. And it's like the, uh, I just wasn't made for these times thing was so cool because I had, uh, written liner notes for a reissue of hot buttered soul. And when I did that, they sent me stems from a lot of my favorite stack songs. Like, they sent me the oh, really? stems from uh, Hot Buttered Soul and from uh, What You See Is What You Get and, like, uh, several stacked songs. So when whenever I had heard I was obsessed with Hot Buttered Soul for years. Like, to me, Hot Buttered Soul is, like, Dark Side of the Moon in its scope and uh, psychedelic landscape, yet uh, orchestral. It's just a phenomenal record. And whenever I would hear uh, By the Time I Get to Phoenix... I would, in my mind, I'd always start singing. I just wasn't made for these times for some reason. I don't know why. I just, that would always happen for me because there's a large lead up. uh, uh, By the time I get to Phoenix, it's like 19 minutes long. And the first eight minutes is just Isaac Hayes talking over this single (laughs) organ note and this tinging hi-hat or or whatever. And, And in my mind, whenever we would listen to that record, I would... I keep looking for a place to, you know, I would sing the Beach Boys song, and when I got the stems, I was like, "Oh fuck, I can like make this uh into the the Beach Boys song." It was so cool. Are you going to be one of those
2: stem collectors now, like Questlove? Because because that's a deep habit. Oh my be... god, yeah!
3: All the stems that you find whenever—I mean, I'm not like obsessed like looking for it, but whenever somebody sends me something, or you you get to hear the stems of your favorite records, you know, like like what's going on, like the stems to that. I mean, when you get to hear Marvin Gaye's isolated vocal and you're there in the vocal booth with him, hearing his like feet scratch around or hearing him adjust the headphones or whatever, you know, all this shit that's in your song that you don't hear. It's all subliminal because it's all mixed in there. But when you get to hear that shit or hear like James Jamerson's bass line isolated or the strings, like it is mind blown. Does the world miss the sort of big albums, like you
2: mentioned Hot Buttered Soul, What's Going On, Dark Side of the Moon, whether people like that kind of music or not, they were just big. They, they took up a lot of room. You, you kind of couldn't get around them. If you if you were alive and listening to the radio, you knew what those were. You know, Otis Redding's Blue, Sgt. Pepper, what, whatever album, you know, Rumors, whatever you want to say. Is, is there something about those that we're missing now in the world, those kind of big statements?
3: No, no. I think there's so many bands making so many great records, so much amazing music right now. I think the only thing that people don't realize is that back then there were like a couple mirrors through which almost everybody saw music, you know, and with the internet, it's like somebody took a hammer and shattered the mirrors into thousands of pieces. So now it's not as easy to, uh, have a cultural moment, you know, we don't get these cultural moments anymore, because everybody's all fragmented, and it's like, you like indie dance pop, then you're fragmented into this mirror shard, or you like uh, hip-hop, you're over here, you know, and it's like, and there are those of us who are uh, trying to look at all of the shards, because we love all types of music, but I feel like grunge was maybe the last era, or that era, or even slightly after that, with like, there were these moments of galvanized albums like a and I by outcast or, uh, you know, just like whatever, even Nirvana, nevermind or, or whatever. Mike, Michael Jackson's thriller or, you know, these, these moments of like albums that were like, not only were they artistic and, and mind expanding, but they're also phenomenally commercially successful. You know, that that's mm-hmm. where I think we don't see that anymore because everything's shattered and album sales have been stolen from artists. So now it's like there are still artists making statements, making incredible music, but it's all it's like you have to find it in this sea of uh, sea of illusions, you know, and it's like and, and you have to find it on your your phone or your fucking computer. And I, and I know I'm sick of uh, screens, you know, but we kind of have to use them, especially during the pandemic. I'm I'm grateful for them. OK, what's next for you? I don't know. I mean, I, I hope uh, God, isn't it wild? I have no idea you know, I just hope to be alive. Hmm. (laughs) You know, it's like, (laughs) I hope that we're all free. You know, I hope that we're all, uh, working towards equality. I hope we all, uh, can somehow manage to all get health care. I hope we can all stay safe and healthy and not get this fucking virus. I hope that a cure or a treatment or whatever comes soon. So we can all get back out there and, uh, enjoy life the way it's meant to be enjoyed, you know, and like, and like people are saying, and I really believe let's not go back to normal. <laughs> you know, let's go forward.
2: Okay. When you think about the future and you think about getting up on stage when this is all over and there's a crowd in front of you, what's the first song you're going to play?
3: Wow. That's a great, great thought. I don't know. Cause there's so many songs we haven't played, you know, there's so many songs we have played and there's so many songs we haven't. I mean, by the time that happens i don't i don't i mean we've already got a whole new jacket record and we've got this new waterfall 2 thing so we've already got like two whole records full of music that that we have never played gosh i, I don't know it's it's going to be a very overwhelming moment but i've also realized that i think we all tend to think in terms of these kind of a uh, yes or no moments like and, and mm-hmm. i've realized it's not going to be that way because it's going to be a slow Uh, trickle back in. As I realized the other day when I played this rally, it's like, whenever my morning jacket gets to play a concert again, it's not going to be, you know, 9,000 screaming people at Red Rocks. It's going to be socially distanced. uh, Everybody's kind of scared coming back in. You know, there's some masks. There's a, you know, wherever it is, it's outdoor. It's going to be a gradual thing where I feel like we're all going to have to hold each other's hands back into this thing, you know, and, and, yeah move slowly back in you know cuz people are fucking broke too and it, it, every band's going to be coming back on the road you know and so you've got every band coming back on the road and you're broke you know it's it's thursday night in oklahoma city and fucking five of your favorite bands are in town you know what do we do you know we've got to be flexible with with the idea of ticketing and 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 prices and you know hopefully we can have some kind of sliding scale system in place so people with no money can come to the show. It's going to be nuts. I guess you're like anybody else. You need a plan for reopening. Totally.
2: Listen, it's been fantastic talking to you. It's been just wonderful. It's a great record. Thank you so much for it. Thanks. Um, And thank you for talking and best of luck with everything.
3: You too. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks to Jim James for recording songs for us and catching us up on everything he's been up to while in quarantine. You can hear our favorite My Morning Jacket and Jim James songs on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com brokenrecordpodcast. There you can find extended cuts of new and old episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and is executive produced by Neil Bell. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. And if you like our show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace.
4: Every week at Broken Record, we meet with legends of the industry to uncover the meaning behind the music the strategy and history that separate the good from the truly great. That's what Mark Chaikin does, but for the U.S. stock market. Mark is a creative legend in his own right. He worked on Wall Street for 50 years, invented three new indices for the Nasdaq, and has predicted some of the biggest market shifts of the past decade, including the recent mania in AI stocks. Now Mark says we're seeing a similar shakeup in the financial markets. He's calling this a new dawn for the U.S. stock market and predicts dozens of specific stocks will soar in the next 90 days. You can watch Mark's presentation for free at marketmessage2024.com right now. Again, the link to watch is marketmessage2024.com. That's marketmessage2024.com. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today.
1: You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. (sighs) Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves so as another busy Monday flies by. Make the most of your me
0: moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandys.